0: The following audio is from a sermon series entitled, Life in Exile, a study of the book of First Peter. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from 1 Peter 1, verses 17 through 21. And if you call on him as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile This is the word of the Lord. Well, you can open up your Bible to the book of first Peter and at sacred city. We do, we preach verse by verse through books of the Bible. The reason we do that is so that we come to a full and complete understanding of the word of God. Now we can't ever come to a full and complete understanding of the word of God, but we can get pretty close or we can constantly be improving. And we do that by studying verses or books of the Bible verse by verse, and it kind of Makes us talk about things that we naturally or normally wouldn't want to talk about, right? Uh, many of you have probably heard hundreds of sermons on John three sixteen, right? It's just a favorite verse people like to go to, but probably none of you maybe have heard of a ver- have a sermon on today's text, right? First Peter uh, seventeen through twenty one, and just to get us caught up really quick, really fast, First Peter is a book written by Peter to Christians in the Greco-Roman world who were struggling because there were minorities in their culture. They were living in a society that was hostile to their faith. And so they felt like exiles. Peter calls them elect exiles. They've been chosen by God, placed as like little missionaries in this culture that's hostile to them. Now hear that. That's not just like superhero Christians, like, you know, Navy SEAL version of Christianity. This is normal Christians. They're elect exiles living in a hostile country. A hostile land to them. That's hostile to their faith. Now at this time, they weren't being thrown to the lions yet. Nero would do that in, in the coming years. But right now they're just being ostracized, just being made fun of. They're being ridiculed by their family and friends. They came to faith and they were, they were feeling different and they were different. And now they're wondering, how do I live? This is so, I feel like a foreigner in my own land. My, Family has kicked me out. My friends have disowned me. My boss is persecuting me. I've gotten fired. How do I live now in this society as a, as a Christian? And I think it's very pertinent for us in this day and age to study the book of First Peter because I believe we're walking into a time of, of that kind of persecution. Many of us have already felt it right now. Maybe not, we're not being thrown to lions, we're not, but we are being ostracized. Our views are being pushed to, the, pushed to the sides and being marginalized and kind of being made fun of and being uh, tossed out. And so it's important for us, listen, as, as me, as your pastor, one of my great jobs is to prepare you for suffering. Do you hear that? It's not to just encourage you and give you a good feel good this morning and you walk out with, you know, like the old coach, just smacks you on the butt and gets you out of here and you feel good about yourself. That's not my goal this morning. My goal is to give you something that lodges itself down inside of you, that when persecution and difficulties come, this thing that you didn't even know was in there begins to grow. There's a seed planted that when persecution comes, you become, you get better. You under, your faith goes deeper, right? You can live it out and understand it in difficult trying times. So that's my job this morning, all right? That's our job. That's my job kind of always to prepare you for suffering. Okay. And Peter's going to help us do that. And he does it, what I think in a very interesting way. Okay. So we're going to get into our text here, but here, here's, here's one thing that I know about you. Without maybe knowing all of you, okay? You were born into or adopted into a family. And that family, your family of origin, had a certain set of values that shaped you for better or worse. Okay, you are a product in some sense of the family of origin. Now, I grew up in a Christian home, my parents were both Christians. And that taught me kind of right away that there was a God and he was in charge, right? And he'd get me if I didn't obey him. But thankfully, they also taught me about Jesus, right? I could never really get these things to work out in my mind, in my young mind, but there was a God who judged and, and he, he knew right from wrong and he was right from wrong, basically, and he was holy. And then there was Jesus who, who would forgive me and he died on the cross for my sins and he would save me if I trusted him by faith. So listen, in that sense, in that very you know, elementary sense, I grew up in a Christian home, right? But it would be a mistake to assume that because my parents were Christians who are both here today, it makes it a little awkward to talk about this, uh, that all of the values, I didn't get their permission either, all of the values, it would be a mistake to assume that because my parents were Christians and they loved Jesus, they absolutely did, and they instilled a love for Jesus in us, it would be a mistake to assume that Because my parents were Christians, all of the values that shaped me in my home were Christian. That'd be a mistake. We, I could give you a lot of examples, but one, we were also kind of transplanted Southerners, right? All of my grandparents were born and raised in Alabama. My dad was born and raised in Alabama. Uh, uh, We we, we made our way up here after, or when, when I was born. And that means we had some Southern values some Southern cultural norms that shaped us. Now listen, and that's good and bad. Some of these values were good. Uh, Southern people, they're very hospitable typically, right? Some of the things, you know, uh, very hospitable. My mom's an amazing cook. You know that's a kingdom value, right? There's some good things about it, but there's also some some negative things, some, some things that aren't Christian. And a couple of years ago, I was digging through an old toy box that I have my grandpa built for me. And I just threw all my like trophies and memorabilia from high school and college. I threw in there and I was digging through this old toy box and I found a Confederate flag that says the South will rise again in the center of it. And I remember going to a flea market when I was in junior high and buying this huge flag, had a skull on it, you know, like a whatever, and it said, the South will rise again, and thinking, this thing is so cool, I'm going to put this in my bedroom, and bring it home, and hang it in my bedroom. Now, this was not some kind of racist ideology that I was purposefully espousing. I loved the Dukes of Hazard, okay, <laughs> and they had one on the roof of the car, right, and I Loved, I, I loved Alabama, right? Roll Tide. I'll say it again, you know, Roll Tide, <laughs> 41 to 10. I'm just going to say that for, just for a second there. I love Alabama, right? I love being, having some Southern roots and family roots in the South. But listen, I was also ignorant of what the flag represented and the details surrounding the Civil War. My ignorance was attested to the first time I brought my best friend who was an African-American, over to hang out. He walked into my room, looked at my wall, looked back at me and said, what the heck is that? Now, it would have been totally appropriate for my friend, he didn't, we had a good conversation, but it would have been totally appropriate for my friend to say something like, I thought you were a Christian. I thought this was a Christian home. He knew that the flag, the Confederate flag, was a sign of racism. It was a symbol for the belief that white men could own African-American as slaves. What else could the South will rise again? What else could that possibly mean? Right? And he also knew that the Bible, that we believed, condemns all forms of racism all forms of racial and cultural favoritism, all forms of segregation, all forms of slavery. Now, this is just one way, a small way in one sense, that my family was not fully formed and shaped by the ideals and the values of scripture. We were ignorant of some things. And as we studied the Bible and as we assessed our beliefs and values that we held, we had to abandon some things from our cultural heritage. We had to get some distance between us and them. We had to reject some things in the light of God's word. And so when I found that flag, I wadded it up and threw it in the garbage. Now, here's what I want you to see this morning. All of us have things like that. All of us. Whether you grew up in the, in the you know, the Eastern, Eastern part of the United States, whether you grew up in the Southern part of the United States, we all have things that we hold and we think are good and we think are true. And we think are normal values that we hold that aren't biblical. And we, we might even be blind to them. All of us have things we are ignorant of values that we hold that are not Christian even though we may be, and even though our parents may have been. And in our text this morning, here's how we connect this. In our text this morning, the apostle Peter draws our attention to these things. He wants us to examine our hearts, to examine our values and beliefs, and listen, to reject what he calls the futile ways inherited from our forefathers. The futile ways inherited from our forefathers. Now, just what were the futile ways inherited in Peter's first century readers? What was he talking about in our context? Well, if you remember, this is a Greco-Roman region that had a spattering of Jewish folks. So you listen, you've got two types of people. Let me say it like this. You've got your Greco-Romans on the left all right, of society, and you've got your Jewish folks on the right of society. In a sense, you've got the your liberals in the first century world, and your kind of conservatives on this, in the first century world, and both of these groups of people they have been, they have beliefs that have been inherited to them. They have values that have been inherited to them. They have futile ways that have been passed down to them from their fathers and from their family and from their cultures. Peter calls these futile. Now what does the word futile mean? Futile means incapable of producing any results, ineffective, useless. Okay. So these aren't Christian. I'm just gonna say it. They're not Christian. They're not going to produce anything good. There's nothing good in these beliefs for your Christian faith and for living out your Christian faith. Now, to expand on that just a little bit, those on the left in the Greco-Roman world, we talked about this two weeks ago, they were dominated by what's called a pluralistic view. It was the religious smorgasbord. They had all kinds of gods that you could worship all, you, you could worship any God you wanted to. All that really matters was when it came time to pay tribute to Caesar, you would still burn a little incense to Caesar. See, there was this veneration of, the, that's the Roman side, Greco, Greco-Roman, the Greek side had all the Greek gods, right? The Roman side, I don't care what you worship, as long as you'll pay a little homage to Caesar, as long as you'll worship the leader of The free world, the world at the time, it doesn't really matter what you do. This is the religious smorgasbord. There are all kinds of gods, all kinds of ways to be spiritual. It doesn't really matter which one you choose. It's just important that you are spiritual, right? Now, listen, the modern version of this in our day and age today could be this follow your heart, do what feels right be true to yourself. You got to do what makes you happy. No one has the right to tell someone else what they can or can't or should or shouldn't do. Now listen, these are some of the mantras that many of us believe today that are similar to the Greco-Roman pluralistic view of Peter's first century readers. Peter says, now listen, those beliefs, follow your heart, do what feels right. There are many different gods. Peter says, those are futile. They're ineffective. Now let me show you what he means. Follow your heart. How many times have you said this to someone? They're trying to make a decision. Maybe you just got to follow your heart. How many times have you heard this said? How many times if you watch any television today, any shows on Netflix today, that this kind of ideology is what's being espoused, follow your heart, do what feels right. Somehow you know down in your knower what the right direction is for you. It seems compassionate. It seems intelligent. It seems with it. It's, it's kind of a cultural norm. But it isn't, listen, Peter says two, over 2,000 years ago, that's futile advice. It's ineffective, it's worthless. This is what God says, this is what God says to Jeremiah in chapter 17, verse nine of Jeremiah. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Okay, you hear that? God says the heart is deceitful, the heart is sick, the heart is deceitful, it lies to us. The heart is sick, it isn't working properly. How many of us, when we're looking for a leader, we go find someone who lies and is sick? Is that what we look for in a leader? I want a guy who's you know, really sick and he lies a lot. That's what I, that's what I need for a leader. I'm gonna, I need to figure out how, what path I should take in my life. I'm gonna look for a lying, sick person, right? But we would say follow your heart, right? Now, if you could take a moment and think about the times in your life where you did follow your heart, how many times has it led us in the wrong direction? It's led us into suffering. It's led us into pain. It's led us into confusion. So Peter's saying, The Greco-Roman futile ways of just follow your heart, do what feels right, be really spiritual and everything will work out. You know, be one with the universe and find some kind of power that can help you live your day-to-day life. That's futile. It's gonna lead you into confusion. It's gonna lead you into suffering. And listen, this is what he's gonna get to too. Follow your heart makes you a slave to your heart. It makes you a slave to your emotions. And I remember a few years ago when I realized, you know what? You can't trust everybody, but there's one person I know I can't trust, and that's me. Because I've lied to myself more than anybody's ever lied to me. (laughs) This will work out. That's probably a good idea. You should probably do that. No, I don't bring it up with the elders. Don't talk to anybody else. Just do that. That'll go well for you. How many times have I failed, right? I I can't trust my own heart. We can't trust our own heart. And so follow your heart is contra-biblical. It's it's anti-gospel. It's not God's way. God's got a different way. But listen, so to follow your heart means you become a slave to your emotions, a slave to your desires, right? But there's also the folks on the right, The, the Jewish folks on the right, the futile ways that they had passed down to them were really an incomplete view or an incomplete understanding of the Old Testament and a faulty understanding of how human beings were to relate to God. They were being taught all the rules but somehow they were missing, listen, the grace of God that makes all the obedience possible and the mercy of God that reconciles sinners. Now, the modern version of this is prominent here in the Quad Cities. I would call this view conservative, but not Christian. Oftentimes, these folks go to church, they give money in the offering plate, but their relationship with God is cold and lifeless and distant it feels often more like a relationship between a boss and an employee than between a child and a gracious kind loving father also many times those who are conservative but not christian they kind of turn a deaf ear and a blind eye to any cry of injustice they ignore the poor They scoff at cries of racism and inequality in our society today and they believe that the answer to every ill in our society is hard work. Just work harder. We're Midwesterners, home of John Deere. Get out in the field, make it happen, dig a ditch, do something. Why? Because... They base their right standing with God upon their good works. Now, they would never say that if they go to church. But you can see it in their life. Their life speaks a better word. Whoa, I'm up here. I'm really confined up here this morning. (laughs) I'll be knocking stuff over. So, when they think, how do you know that? How do you know if this could be you, conservative but not Christian? When you think you're doing good, you know God's happy with you. And when you're not doing well, you're less inclined to go to church, less inclined to go to missional community, less inclined to read your Bible. You're not performing well, and so you feel distant from the Father. And so when you're living like that, when you look at other people who their life isn't going as well as yours, you automatically think, it's ingrained in you to think, those who aren't doing good just need to work harder. It's, their fault, hard work becomes the answer to everything. And it's interesting because Jesus confronted the people like this in Matthew 23. And he said this, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Now listen, when we hear scribes and Pharisees, we immediately conjure up some idea, some group of people that has nothing to do with us, but scribes and Pharisees, I'm just going to put this on conservative, but not Christian For, as far to the right as you could get in that society. Moral, upstanding, paying their taxes, doing their good deeds, conservative, but not Christ-like in any way. This is what Jesus says, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin. That means they followed the the tiniest laws, the laws of tithing. They they followed it so well, they would go out to their garden and snip off 10% of their herbs and bring it to the priest and lay it before God. Now, I doubt any of us, we have many tithers in here, but I doubt any of us, you know, if somebody brings food to your house, you're like, okay, 10% of this goes to God. You should, especially if it's good food, bring it to the pastor, 10%. Should be, Texas sheet cake, you know, slice that, be real generous, bring it. But I doubt any of us follow the rules like that. But these people did. Now, listen, this is what Jesus says to them. He says, you've done that, but you've neglected the weightier matters of the law. The weightier matters. Tithing is important, but there's something more important. And it says this, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. And he says, these you ought to have done without neglecting the others. So you should be You should be giving, you should be generous, you should be tithing, but more importantly is that you're fighting for justice. And now listen to me, working for justice isn't just, let me just use the the example I've already used, and, and I have to talk about this all the time. It's not enough in our society to not be racist. We have to be working for the reconciliation of all races. That's part of what it means to work for justice and to be about mercy in our world, right? We all have racism. Here's the thing. What is a racist? We know what it is when when it's on the big screen and when they're doing crazy stuff. But racism is like lust in the heart. Who's not guilty of lust in the heart? Who's not guilty of coveting something somebody else owns in the heart? Racism in the heart is I prefer my cultural heritage to that person's, and I'm going to kind of push away because that's kind of annoying to me. That gets on my nerves. I don't like the way they handle those things. They're too emotive. They're too cold. They're too whatever the... That's racism in the heart. And justice and the gospel obliterates all of those dividing walls that divide us. And justice is working that we all are experiencing justice. White, black, Asian, wherever you're from, we're all experiencing the same amount of of justice in our society. Jesus says, work for these things. And these people Jesus looks at and he sees, wow, you look really put together on the outside. And I'm just so impressed with you. No, that's not what Jesus says. He says, you do look put together on the outside, but inside you're full of dead men's bones. You should clean the outside of the cup, but first clean the inside of the cup. Do the work in the heart. Listen, do you hear what Jesus is saying right there? Just like the liberals, Greco-Romans, the ones on the right have sick hearts, have deceitful hearts. Your heart has deceived you that God just wants you to obey him in some outward way when the reality is God wants an inner change, a change from the inside, whole new person. They had sick hearts just like the liberals, but they cleaned up the outside. They looked put together and religious on the outside. But Jesus says that way of life, listen, conservative, but not Christian is futile. It's pointless. And many of us have been handed down this form of the faith from our parents, from our culture. We go to church, but we're not Christian. Sometimes we can be shaped more by our conservative politics than our Christianity. I'm reminded of a story, actually a letter I received from a mom who was very upset, parents who were very upset. They were conservative, been conservative the majority of their life, raised their kids conservative. And one of their children Felt like they were uh, gay. And so they were coming out of the closet, so to speak, and telling their parents. And this was a very difficult conversation. So, so they wrote a letter. And the mom was bringing it to me and saying, I need your help. Well, let's counsel. Let's talk about this. And we we're going to walk through them with it. But one of the things that struck me the, the most was in this letter, this person said, uh, they, they, they come out and they say, Dad, mom, I'm gay. I know you're going to be really upset. And then they go on and on and on. But then at the end, they said this But don't worry, I'm still a Republican. I'm gay, not stupid. That's how they ended the letter. And something about the home said what's really important is that you're a Republican, that you have Republican values. What's real doesn't your sexuality. Yeah, yeah that bothers us. But did mom and dad would go through the roof if I switched over to the left and became a liberal, right? Futile ways. And just like the follow your heart way of living, follow the rules is nothing more than another form of slavery slavery to a political party, slavery to the rules, slavery to always being right, slavery to looking clean and respectable and that never leads to what Peter says in verse 8, rejoicing with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Why it's not the glory or it's not the gospel. So you got to have Peter writing this letter to those who are on the left, the Greco-Roman, do whatever you feel feels right, and the Jewish folks who are on the right who are follow the rules, be conservative. And Peter's looking at both and saying, and us today, those are futile ways that you've inherited from your forefathers and you must reject them. Now here's the meat of the sermon this morning. And we're about to get into our text. I already kind of am, but... No matter what we were taught by our parents, becoming a Christian, hear this, becoming a Christian is nothing less than an adoption into an adoption by a new father into a new family, and will require from us, a, listen, a totally new way of living. All right, it's not a liberal way or a conservative way; it's a new gospel way. We've been adopted by a new father into a new family, and that's going to cause us to live in a new way. We're going to live in our culture as a new and distinct type of people. You cannot put a Republican label on us or a Democrat label on us or an independent label on us. We are different and distinct. Now listen, this is what it means. This is what Peter is saying when he's saying you are to be holy. Holy means set apart. It means distinct. We live differently because we are different. We've been made different. Peter is saying here, we have a new father, we get adopted into a new family and that means we have to learn a whole new way of lo- living that is going to look differently than others in our co- It's going to look different than others in our culture. Now let's look, verse 17. Verse 17. And if you call on him as father. Now, all through the first 17 verses, Peter has told us in several different ways that God is the eternal father of Jesus and that he had predestined and foreordained believers to to be adopted into this new family. That God, the father of Jesus has now become our father That he foreloved us before we were even born and he predestined to adopt us as his chosen and uniquely loved children. But it's interesting here that Peter, he doesn't just throw the term out father, but he qualifies it. Look what he says there. 17. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds... Peter says, God is a father who judges impartially. Peter is pushing back on the Greco-Roman idea of God that can kind of be bent to do whatever he wills. Now listen, we all love the idea, if you had a good and gracious father, we love the idea of God because we think we can bribe him. Now let me tell you, I am bribable, okay? My nerves go to here and then I give them whatever they want, right? Right? When there's four of them, right? They're like piranhas. You can't get them off. There's nothing to do. And you just give them, fine, candy, take it, right? You just give out iPads. Oh, thank God, right? Let YouTube parent them for an hour, right? Now we all like the idea, many of us like the idea of God as father, right? Because we think, okay, if I do enough things, then God, I can bend his will to give me what I want. If I pray enough, go to church enough, obey enough, I can get enough. I can get things from God, right? But Peter here qualifies the term as father, as a father who judges impartially. Now, nobody wants a father who judges impartially, right? You bring your neighborhood friends over, you guys get in a fight, you go before your dad, you're wanting dad to stand up for you right? It doesn't matter if you were in the wrong or not. You want dad to be partial. Dad, kick his butt, right? Dad, do something to this kid, right? But this, Peter says, no, no, no. He's a God who judges impartially. God is not a God who will let me follow my heart and just give me what I want. He's not a God who just lets me do what I want with my life. He's a God who judges impartially. He has his own standard. This is what it is to be holy. He is holy in himself. He is right in himself. It cuts across all cultural and socioeconomic barriers. God has no favorites. He cannot be bribed. He's holy. But listen, but then, you know, the judge who judges impartially is also kind of qualified by the term father. God isn't the angry judge of the conservative but not Christian who's going to get all our enemies, right? He's our father who judges impartially. His verdicts are never vindictive. They're not punitive. They're disciplinary and restorative. Like a father, God disciplines those that he loves. And as Peter says, that should cause all believers to fear him to have, to be in awe of him. That when I stand before God, he didn't choose me because I came from a Christian home. He didn't choose me because I'm, I'm conservative in my moral outlook of the world and because I'm pretty put together. And so when it's me, but it's between me and, and someone who's living their own life, God's gonna choose me because he's pleased with me. No, 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 no. He's pleased with me because of the work of Jesus. We're all, he's impartial. We're all standing on equal footing. We're all sinners in the hand of God. Now, so this is it. When we put our faith in Christ, we are given this new father who judges impartially. Now listen, because we have a new father that gives us a new family, and we know the reason, let me just say this, the reason many of your issues, I'm assuming some things about you, many of your issues were caused and created and formed in your family of origin. Your dad yelled a lot, right? So you've got a temper, right? Your mom was super controlling. And so you interpreted it, oh, all good moms think they're God and can control all circumstances. I'll be that type of mom and I will be super controlling and try to be God. That's not gonna work out for you, right? We, many of our issues were formed in a family, right? And maybe you went to college and you went to college and you got around all these different people and you said, I'm rejecting everything. And then you just step into the other camp, right? That's a futile way as well. But listen, if we were formed, I'm gonna say it like this. If we were deformed in a family, the only way to be reformed is in a new family. And this new family is the family of God, the church of Jesus Christ. I can't get into this too much because it's actually next week's text where Peter tells us that Christians who have been adopted by God have this quote. I'm gonna look, I might as well just look at it real quick. Okay, I won't, fine. They have, quote, a sincere brotherly love that they love one another from a pure heart see you 've been adopted by a loving father you 've been giving a new loving heart, and now surprise surprise, you love your brother and your sister and that that 's not the how many voted on their brother or sister? None of us did. we get what, what comes out of mama 's womb, like it or not personality oh man, I would not choose this person for my friend i 've been given a brother i 've been given a sister right listen you don 't choose your family friends. You don't choose your family. You don't choose your spiritual family. God puts them in your life for your good, right? Sometimes it's like a block of wood and sandpaper, right? And that's why God put them there, to sand some rough edges off of you, to form you and reform you in community. God has given us a new family where we are to learn new ways of being and living in this world. That is the church. And it's in this new family the church where our futile ways that we inherited from our forefathers need to be pointed out, confessed, repented of, turned away from, and cast down at the feet of Jesus. Have you ever thought, why does that person bug me so much? Why? Why? Nine times out of 10, that's just a statistic I just made up, but nine times out of 10, it's probably a family of origin issue that you grew up thinking this is the right way to handle things. So many people, right? If, you're mid, if you grew up middle class, there's just certain things you don't share with people, right? And you look down on oversharers. Oh, ooh, she just blurted all that out right in front of everybody. <laughs> Nobody taught her you don't do that. Really? Is that a biblical value? Is that a, that's a cultural value inherited probably from your parents. Yeah, that one hit a nerve. <laughs> and it's in this new family. See, it's in this new family, God's family, where we learn to live as holy people, different from the left and the right and the middle, different from those in our culture. You cannot classify us in those terms. Christians are not classifiable, especially in political terms. We're different. We're holy. But it's important for us to see. Now listen, this doesn't just happen automatically. You get born again. You put your faith in Jesus Christ. And all of a sudden, all your cultural values just disappear. It doesn't happen like that. Jesus doesn't wipe our memories. He doesn't delete our hard drives of the futile ways that were passed down by our families and our cultures. That's why Peter said in verse 13 that we need to prepare our minds for action and be sober minded. Living in line with the gospel, being God's gospel people will take some heavy thinking, some focused deliberation. It will take some time looking at my life, some self-examination and examining my beliefs and values over and against the values of the Bible. To not be, I'm going to quote Peter again, conformed to our passions of our former ignorance. This is Peter's way of saying, before you came to Christ, you were stupid. That's what he's saying. You were stupid. You were led by your desires. You were just like everybody else in the culture. Now, it's not just talking intellect, the ability to learn things. He's talking about the ability to love God who gave you everything and is the supreme being. If you diss him, you're a fool. Proverbs tells us to say there is no God, you're a fool. Now, you know, I could debate that, we could talk about that, and I'd be right and I'd prove it. Because the Bible, because <laughs> the Bible, right? It's foolish to do these things. We were ignorant before we came to Christ, right? That's what Peter's, what, what Peter's saying there. Now, listen to gird up my mind to think rightly to be changed inside this new family, what he's saying is it's going to require us to do some heavy thinking, flip-flops. <laughs> it's going to require us, listen, to think, to examine, to study. This is what it means, To Jesus said, to love God with all of our mind. You cannot learn how to live holy in, in this culture from CNN or Fox News. Okay? In one sense of... I'm, I'm just saying. You've got to read the Bible. You can't learn this from Facebook and your Facebook feed and all of your friends. You learn this from God's word. You need to read, all of us, good Christian books. Good Christian books, right? Good theology. Listen to good expository sermons. Spend a lot of time with people who are purposely following Jesus and submitting all of their life to him. That's what it means to be holy, to be set apart to God. How does a Christian think about these issues? What does the Bible have to say about these issues? And not like we want to so easily do, jump on the left or jump on the right. We have a new father, we have a new family, and we are becoming New gospel people. And let me tell you, this is what our world desperately needs right now. This is what our culture and our society and our city and your workplace and your family desperately needs right now. People who are not on the left or are the right, they're holy, they're different. They can love, embrace, be compassionate and speak the truth. And we can tell, we can tell those, like those of us, those that will listen to us, we can tell them that we have a father who loves us, but he's also a father who judges impartially. He's a father who saves us from the futile ways that we've inherited from our families of origin. He loves us into his new holy family. He changes us into holy people. And then he sends us out with this holy message of reconciliation, God loves sinners like us. It's as simple as that. God loves sinners like us. God saves sinners like us and God will save a sinner like you, whoever you're talking to. And that really is the key. Let me finish reading this morning. seven, uh, 17. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially, according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear. That's awe, reverence through the time of your exile. While you're living as kind of like foreigners in our society, like we are today, knowing, look, how do you do this? How do you live as holy guys? How do we live as holy in this culture? Look, knowing that you were past tense, Ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. That is the key that opens up the gospel chest. That is the key that opens up a whole new way of living if you can really understand it. How do we live differently in our world that wants us to take sides? How do we live in a new family that is far more diverse than our family of origin? How do we love each other with a true and sincere brotherly love? Look how Peter says it in verse 18, knowing that you were ransomed. Now, Sam talked about this a little bit last week, but half of us weren't here. So I'm going to clarify it again. This is one of the most important things you can learn about studying your Bible, specifically your New Testament. There are things called indicatives and things called imperatives. Imperatives, that's easy to define. Go do it. Okay. That's what an imperative is. If it says, love your brother, that's an imperative. Many of us read the Bible like it's just a book of imperatives. All it is is a book telling me what I need to do. If you think that, you you don't understand the Bible at all. The Bible is a book of imperatives that are built on the foundation of indicatives. Indicatives are things that God has done that are true no matter what you do, right? If I say I deposited a million dollars into your bank, right? That's good news, right? That's just an indicative. It's just something that I have done. Now, if I say, I deposited a million dollars into your bank, will you write me a check for $1,000? Right? Now, does it make a difference if I go up to my brother and I say, hey, will you write me a check for $1,000? Is that statement a little different than if I go, I just deposited a million dollars in your bank account, will you write me a check for $1,000? Right? Who wants the second statement? Right? We want... In, indicatives, first imperative, second, the whole new Testament is built on this concept. Here is what God has done for you in Christ. Now live it out. It is not you go live this way. And then God will love you. And then God will do this. And then God will do that. It's indicatives. This is what God has done. That's why Peter spent 16 verses, barely giving us any imperatives, just telling us you've been adopted. You've been chosen. You've been loved. And now again, he comes right back to it. You've been ransomed. It's imperatives built on top of indicatives. And you got to know this because this is what it means to be gospel centered. Everything we do in life comes out of what God has already done for us. We have an inheritance in heaven. We've been reconciled one to another. We've been forgiven and given the righteousness of Christ. Now we go out and we share the gospel. Now we live as servants. Now we live as missionaries because what he has already done for us. This is why there's freedom in the gospel and it's not a bunch of, just a bunch of rules. Now listen, it's interesting here because Peter uses a word. Let's keep looking. So when he says, knowing that you were ransomed. Now we read that word and we kind of probably only have one, we have a hostage scenario in our mind when we read ransom, right? Maybe you have Mel Gibson in your mind from an old movie, right? Uh, That's not what they would have thought, okay? The Greco-Romans would have thought of the idea of manumission. Now manumission, uh, let me just say this it's one of the reasons it's hard for us to read this text and read this Bible. It's because many of us in this room are what we call middle class. Okay. in this society, there was no middle class. Okay. Roughly 10% were upper class. 90% were lower class. There is no middle class in the Greco Roman world. Okay. You were, you owned slaves or you were a slave basically. And when I say slave, don't think of what we had in this country. It wasn't like that. It was more like indentured servitude. I owe you something. So now I'm going to work for you for months or years or however long to pay off my debt. Okay. Now, listen, this idea of manumission, if I was a slave in the Greco-Roman society, I could go to the temple. Okay. I could go to the temple and I could give my money. Let me just use our day and age language, I give, I've worked for 10 years. I've saved up $10,000. I go to the temple. I give $10,000 to the temple priest. Okay. Temple priest takes that money and goes to the uh, slave owner and now, and, and pays off my debt. And now I am now a slave to the God of that temple. That was the idea of manumission. So the priest was doing the work, but it was actually the goddess Artemis or whoever it was. That goddess bought my freedom. Okay, so I would go to the priest, pay the money. They would go to the slave owner, pay the money, and that would buy me freedom. So when the Greco-Roman heard this idea that you have been ransomed, they thought, oh, this God has bought me. I don't belong to myself anymore. Now I belong to this God. They thought this idea of manumission. So this, not, not, listen, I'm free. I get to do whatever I want. Woo, I'm free. I've been ransomed. I can go live my life however I want. No, 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 no. You've been bought by a new God. You've been bought by Yahweh, the only true God, the God of the Old Testament. You've been bought by that God and you need to serve him only for the rest of your life. Okay, that's the idea of manumission on the left-hand side. And he says, he's bought you and now you belong to him. And of course, what was the adoption price? What was the ransom price? Tells us right there. You weren't bought with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus, the Christ, like, the, like, like that, look, of a lamb without blemish or spot. Now, look, see, on the right, the spattering of Jewish folks in that society would have, when they heard the idea of ransom, what did they think? We just got through Exodus. We know what they thought. They thought of the lamb that had to be slain on the night of the Passover, right? That God rescues them out of slavery and now he's their God and they serve him. And so the Jewish people, when they heard this idea that you were ransomed, not by your work, but by the blood of the lamb, that Jesus Christ did it for you. The Jew would have thought of the Exodus. God redeemed us. He's brought us out to worship him. Now listen, both of these concepts are true. Peter is a genius when he's writing here, using words that the Greco-Roman understand and the Jew understand, and they both kind of mean very similar things. You are a slave to your heart. You were a slave to your desires. You were a slave to the rules. You were under the slave master of religion, but now you have a new master, a kind and gracious father who has ransomed you. Past tense. With with the precious blood of Jesus. See, as I close this morning, Jesus went before the impartial judge in our place. Jesus bore the punishment that we deserve. And that's why all of our judgment will only ever be redemptive and restorative in the form of loving discipline because Jesus took our sin. He took our punishment to himself. He took it on the cross where God judged him. God looked at his sinless son and said, guilty, guilty you deserve to die and be killed right now. Even Jesus cried out and said, if there's any other way, Father, let this cup pass from me. And God basically responded and said, there's no other way. You've got to die. Why? He looked at Jesus and said guilty so he could look at us and say, holy, you have been set apart to live with me and my family forever in paradise and living in the kingdom of God and living in the church family right now is a foretaste of what's going to happen in the kingdom. Now, if you know yourself to be a slave that has been ransomed by no work of your own, Listen, if you know yourself down in your gut, you know yourself to be a slave who was enslaved to the futile and foolish ways of your former way of life. And now you have been set free. You've heard the good news that God has done everything to set you free and buy you with a new price to a new master, this kind and gracious heavenly father who judges impartially. He's done all the work necessary to make you holy. How are you going to treat those who think and act differently than you? How are you going to talk about those on the other side of the political aisle? Those of different races. Those of different socioeconomic classes. Man, I wish I could, I wish the spirit would just drop this understanding on us. This is how the gospel makes us different. This is how the gospel changes us. This is how the gospel unites us. It changes the way we see the world. It changes the way we see ourselves. It changes the way we see our father. It changes the way we live. We were slaves who've been bought with a price. Nothing we've ever done influence that decision, the grace of God. And as we come to the table this morning, listen, we come, I already know that this family right here is more diverse than your family of origin. We have different races. We have people from different cultural backgrounds, different socioeconomic backgrounds. We have educated, we have uneducated. We've got... This is more diverse family than the family you've come from. And there's more wisdom and more understanding and more grace in this family right here than there is in the family you've come from. And as we come to the table this morning, we come to the Lord's table as one diverse family. And our unifying factor isn't, oh, we all like the, the music. Oh, I just, we just all like the music, Joel, hmm good music. The unifying factor I praise is, all oh, we like the preaching. The uni- I know it ain't, oh, we just love the tent. <laughs> it's tent day. The unifying factor is this. Tell me if this is true. When we come to this table this morning, the unifying factor is we have all rejected the futile ways that we've inherited from our families and from our culture's And we have been ransomed by a new father into a new family for a whole new way of living through the precious blood of Jesus Christ. That's what unifies us. Let us come and eat together as we worship our Lord through the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. Father, we worship you. We thank you for the work you've done. The last few verses that I didn't even get to this morning, I forgot to touch on, Father, are all about the gospel, all about you, all about our hope is in you. It's not in ourself. Our hope is in you. And we're reminded of that as we come together to this, in this diverse meal where we do nothing but open up our grubby little hands and you put the most precious element on the face of the earth, the body of Christ and the blood of Christ, precious blood of Christ. You put it in our hands so that we can consume it so that we can bring it into ourselves and we can remind it that we're united into a new family. No matter how divided we are outside these walls, no matter how divided our country feels, we are united in the faith of Jesus Christ. Would you help us see, identify the futile ways of our forefathers and reject them and embrace the unifying factor, the unifying belief of the gospel? Help us do that. Jesus, on the night that you were betrayed, you took the bread and you said, this is my body broken for you. We're commanded to eat this in remembrance of you. Every time we gather together, you took the cup, the cup of the covenant, the cup of, the, of your suffering. And you said, this is my blood that's spilled for you. Nothing could redeem us. Nothing could fix us. Nothing could heal us, but the shed blood of God. It took the blood of God to save us, to unite us, to heal us. And you gave it to us to remember the sacrifice. And so we eat and we drink and worship this morning. We praise your holy name. In Jesus' holy name. Amen.